Hey guys, welcome to our podcast, The Missing Bridge in America, where two college kids talk about political and social issues. My name is Brian Escalona, and we have here my friend, Gannon Shook. But today's a very special episode because we are having a guest star, and today we're going to be talking to him about the United States national security. And we're also going to be talking about specifically Russia's involvement in certain nations and sort of what the U.S. has done in countries like Libya, Ukraine, Syria, and many others. However, before we get into the episode, I want to introduce you guys who this guest star is. He is one of the head delegates of Florida International University's top five Marty United Nations program in the nation. And that's, in fact, where Gannon and I met him in the Marty United Nations team. We actually tried out together and we, we saw him grow and we, we've just seen each other throughout our entire college career. He is also a senior majoring political science and international relations with a certificate and European and Eurasian affairs. And if Gannon, you want to say anything else before we, we mention him? So this guy, this man, is personally one of my closest friends at FIU. Him and I play COD while I try to m- maintain my temper. It doesn't go well sometimes, but Nick, see, he knows, he knows. So our guest today is Nicholas Velasquez, the one and only. You are more than welcome to introduce more about yourself if we missed anything. Thank you so much, guys. That was a really nice introduction. Thank you so much for having me on the show, first of all. Uh, I've been a fan since the first episode. A bit biased, though, because as they said, I am a friend of the show, quite literally. Um, <laughs> a little bit more about me. Uh, I think you guys did a pretty good job. Um, double majoring in international relations and political science with a certificate in European Region Studies and National Security Studies. So this is kind of my wheelhouse. It's what I'm very passionate about, and I'm very, very privileged to be sharing that with you guys today. Well, we're welcome to have you. And before we get into the gist of what we're going to talk about in the episode, I wanted to just ask you just two general questions so we can get to know you more. And I wanted to know why exactly you decided to study international relations. At what point in your in your college career did you decide that you wanted to study international relations? And why specifically did you focus on European and Eurasian affairs? Um, so that could be its own podcast, frankly, but the, the too long didn't read version of it is that in high school, I was a very aimless individual. I didn't know what I wanted out of my life. Uh, and then when I went to university, I kind of thought, you know, politics is cool. You know, I, I think, you know, we just got a new administration. I came in, uh, fall 2017. So the, the world around me definitely like spurred a curiosity, I suppose. Um, and then I, I worked on a campaign and, uh, while I don't have anything negative to say about the experience, you know, it just wasn't for me. I wanted something a bit more objective, not partisan or anything like that. And when I thought about it, I felt like the best avenue for that would be international relations and security policy, where you literally have to be objective to do a good job, frankly, because if you let your opinions get in the way that could cost revenue, it could cost American lives. Uh, foreign lives, frankly, like there's a lot on on the line with international relations. So I felt like it was just a good blend of being fulfilled and being proud of what I could potentially do. That's really awesome to hear and how you say how uh, politics here in the United States can be very objective. It can be very partisan. And sometimes you just want to go outside of the box and look at the, the global sphere of influence that the United States has. However, I wanted to ask you, now that you are passionate about this, and just right before we get into the actual episode, is what do you aspire to be in the future? Just briefly, what do you plan to do with all this knowledge that you have? Uh, well, I'll, I'll be, be as concise as humanly possible. I would like to 
serve my government's interests within an analytical capacity within the public sphere or within a, within a think tank type of atmosphere we'll we'll see where the path goes but certainly that type of analytical writing and critical thinking is where we're trying to go that's that's really interesting that's really interesting and i hope that you're you're able to achieve that and you definitely have a bright future ahead of you we see your successes right now and we know that in the future you'll definitely have a good chance of reaching your goals in that area so with that being said let's just get straight into the episode of what we're going to be talking about today and today we're just going to be talking about national security as i was mentioning earlier and the united states involvement in several nations like russia libya ukraine syria and pretty much what has been going on with our foreign policy very recently however before we get into what the us has done we have to define what is national security and i know nick nicholas velasquez you you wanted to define that as well well it's it's very subjective uh your definition may not be the same as mine mine might not be the same as uh mr shook uh mine may not be the same as john bolton or donald trump it's very very subjective but to me, national security, when you think about it in a very reductive way, it is a condition that states are either trying to achieve or they're trying to preserve it once it's achieved. And once these states have this condition or once they've achieved it, rather, um, it allows for a state to pursue, to look inwards uh, without fear of what could potentially threaten their development, right? And so, you know, within international relations, some would say that that look is purely towards the external, a foreign aggressor. But I would expand threats to national security to internal actors as well, which some people would probably take issue with that because there's a big consensus. Like the, there's like a bunch of big theories in IR, right? There's realism, liberalism. Realism focuses more on actual countries, not really groups within countries. Yeah, and I definitely can see where you're coming from on that perspective in terms of defining national security. And I agree with what you said on the fact that it is indeed subjective. And this is something that I've been interested in a long time. You know, me being a military child and having my father serve in the military, I'm always interested to hear what he has to talk about in terms of what he does at work and then other conversations we have in terms of national security and foreign affairs. So the way that I would personally define it, similarly, simple put, It's the defense policies that a government tries to implement or implements to ensure the security of itself and its border. And in the case of democratic governments, to be more specific, the people from foreign threats or domestic threats. So it's definitely one. You definitely can interpret it from a domestic perspective, but it's also important to take it into account a foreign perspective as well. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with both of you. And I think that it's very hard to put a national security into one box and put it into one definition because for so many different countries, national security can mean so many different things. So I think that when we're looking towards the United States, we have to look at what they have done and what do they think national security really is. And I know today we want to focus on some nations that the U.S. has had a heavy influence over, which is Libya, Ukraine, and Syria. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts, Nick, on what do you think the, the U.S. involvement in Libya has shown for our nation's national security? So Libya is an interesting case, right? I I probably would have liked to have tackled Syria first, which is more palatable, but Libya is interesting because during the Obama administration, the Arab Spring erupted, which uh, was a bunch of protests within the Arab world against the repressive regimes within the Middle Eastern region. 
And there are very few success stories that came out of that. Uh, Egypt uh, saw the Muslim Brotherhood get elected into power only to be ousted by a military dictatorship, which is what they have now. Syria is in civil war. And then Libya, Libya saw their dictator of 40 something years, a man by the name of Muammar Gaddafi, a Cold War relic responsible for numerous terrorist attacks throughout the Cold War, um, directly funding terror, to get it on the record. He was ousted um, and he was killed by his own people, right? They found him in, I think, uh, like a drainage vault or something like that, uh, hiding away. And they pulled him out and they, they killed him. And when they killed him, uh, there was this government that popped up that um, called the Government of National Accord, UN recognized, whole nine yards. And we were very much involved in the ousting of Muammar Gaddafi. We had Operation Odyssey Dawn with NATO, which created a no-fly zone within the country. And that allowed for the rebels to defeat Gaddafi's forces, right? But as soon as Gaddafi was overthrown uh, and the new government tried to get its footing, uh, we adopted a policy of absolute neutrality, which in my view has only served to make the turmoil in that country worse. Because as soon as Gaddafi was out, the new government was in, a new civil war began, which is where we are with, with Libya right now between the government of national accord that is UN recognized, and that's the one that we recognize as well, and the Libyan national army that is backed by France, Russia, Egypt, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and a whole host of other countries. Uh, so, and they're in, they're in a state of civil war and we are absolutely uninvolved. And what that's led to frankly is uh, a, a void of power. And what we're gonna find out as we talk more about these states, Syria, Ukraine, Libya, is that there are, and North Korea too, to a certain extent, uh, that when there are voids of power in the world, especially in this unipolar world that we found, find ourselves in or found ourselves in, depends on your perspective, when there are voids of power, authoritarian states like Russia, China, Iran, they're very quick to exploit it because one-on-one -on -one they could never compete with us. And Libya is one such void of power where we are absent and Russia is very much present. Yeah, I, I completely understand where you're, where you're coming from, right? how you want the United States to have more of a more of an influence on that region, because if not, Russia is going to get involved in Libya. If not, North Korea, maybe even China will get involved in Libya. However, I just had a quick question, just a, a sub-question on Libya, right? We know that the, the United States has sent a lot of companies there, at least in the past, from starting from 2005. We've sent a lot of companies over there because of the long-standing investments that Libya has had in terms of extracting oil. In that, in that specific country. It's one of the, the countries with most oil in the world. And uh, the U.S. has had sort of a, this economic incentive to intervene in, in Libya. And I was just curious because it was when the oil industry started to fall with oil output started to plummet in the region that the United States sort of backed off and was more neutral. And of course, you were talking about other reasons why the U.S. may have remained neutral, right? Because of the civil war, the overthrow of Gaddafi, and the country just became very chaotic, right? However, it would, do, you think, do you believe that there was any economic incentive that played a role in terms of U.S. neutrality with the region? To be honest with you, I wouldn't know particularly the economic incentive to be neutral. I could only speak to the economic incentives for states like Russia to be involved in that right now, because of coronavirus, there is crude output or crude prices, oil prices, are at all-time lows, right? So, for example, my car, typically it costs like $30 to fill. Now it's like $18, which is insane. 
Um, so what's ended up happening is that all these oil-dependent states, right, these resource traps, that they, these countries that become dependent upon the petrodollar, all, all this stuff, are counting upon Libya to stop producing oil, right? And the way that they make sure that they don't produce oil is that they're in a state of civil war, right? So as long as Libya isn't producing oil, the supply is lower because Libya has the largest oil reserves in Africa. That's a pretty substantial amount of oil. So as long as the supply is lower, the price is gonna go up. And I was reading earlier today on the, the Washington Institute uh, for an assignment I had to do for one of my classes. I'm gonna quote it right here, I have it pulled up. Moreover, whenever Libya stops producing oil, global prices go up, which benefits the Kremlin. Indeed, oil prices rose to $65 per barrel recently. In result, Haftar stopped production on the eve of the Berlin talks. So there is very much an interest within Libya towards uh, crude output and crude pricing and all that. But insofar as the United States staying neutral, it would be irrational, frankly, if the eco economic aspect of it is why they stayed neutral. Because then what you're doing is you're allowing for states that rely on the petrodollar to get stronger, notably Russia, right, who they are an adversarial state. If the United States was rational, we would not allow for Libya to be in a state of flux and chaos. The whole point of regional stability in the Middle East is to make sure that regional supply stays in order. That, that, makes, that makes sense to me. I just, I think that U.S. neutrality in that conflict was more of a perception issue. We didn't want to be seen as this empire trying to control Libya after we ousted Muammar Gaddafi. We didn't even want to be seen as the people that ousted Muammar Gaddafi. We wanted it to be seen rather as the people rising up. And I think for the most part, that's indicative of what happened on the ground. But so long as adversarial states can weaponize uh, their worldview towards that end, we have a distinct problem with our optics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, as you were saying. It's not only economic incentive that plays into a role of neutrality, or maybe it even doesn't play a role. That makes a lot of sense because well, how you're saying it, the neutrality has more to do with security in the country, and it has less to do with the economic incentives that the U.S. receives from Libya, right? And another, another country that I want to mention is Ukraine, because we have a lot of strong ties to Ukraine, and we have a lot of economic incentives with Ukraine as well. The difference with Ukraine is that it's it's a democratic state and it has a market economy and the U.S. has sort of used that to have more diplomatic relations with Ukraine since 1991. So how do you think the, the U.S. involvement in Ukraine has played out and how will it continue to play out? So for Ukraine, while they're a democratic state, I'd caution against calling them a democratic state. They're very much an imperfect democracy in that there is deep oligarchic interests in that country, uh, same as there are in Russia. So regarding United States interest in, in Ukraine, right? It goes very much to show this old Cold War doctrine of deterrence in Europe, right? You know, we fought two world wars over Europe, frankly. I mean, even though we were attacked in World War II by uh, Japan, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and uh, Winston Churchill, they had the Europe first policy, right? So European security has always been this cornerstone of United States national security or na uh, international interests, however you want to word it. So insofar as Ukraine is concerned with that, what that entire ordeal presented to us was Russia, who we thought for a long time was barely a regional power, uh, barely could control their own borders, right? We saw with Chechnya, uh, these, these terrorists effectively seceded, and then Russia had to launch two disastrous wars that caused 
uh, millions in infrastructural damage to their country. We saw Georgia in 2008, where Russia grew very insecure that we were thinking about adding Georgia to NATO. So we thought for a long time that Russia could not really compete with us in Europe, anywhere in Europe. And then we see the Euromaidan movement, which ousts the Yanukovych administration in Ukraine and uh, installs this new pro-Western government. And as a response, Russia went into Crimea, seized the uh, peninsula, and invaded the eastern oblast of Ukraine. And there was absolutely nothing we could have done about it uh, because we didn't have any uh, security partnerships with Ukraine at the time. They weren't in NATO. They, we didn't even have a significant presence there. But now after the fact, now we do have partnerships with them. There is a NATO mission in Ukraine. And it's very clear to Putin, to President Vladimir Putin of Russia, that he can't seize any more of Ukraine than he already has, as that would pose a significant threat to European security and thus transatlantic security, which includes the United States of America. So I think it's very clear now to the U.S. that Ukraine is definitely something we have to defend, and it's something that we can defend now. But in 2014, that probably was off the cards. Yeah, I, I understand. And as, as you were saying, I think that we, we have had more of an influence in Ukraine after the situation with Crimea happened. And we started to establish more security there, as you were saying. And I think that we have had an economic influence with Ukraine as well with the bilateral investment treaty. That's how we've been able to establish more relations with Ukraine as well. However, with Crimea specifically, the U.S. does not recognize that, that Russia next Crimea, essentially. And what do you think this means for Ukraine, for, for Russia specifically? Regarding Crimea and the status of that territory, I, I think at this point it's between Russia and Ukraine, frankly. I don't think that the United Nations or the U.S. can really definitively settle that, because if they could, they would have already. I think there's already a U.N. resolution that recognizes Crimea as a part of Ukraine, but you know there's still a Russian flag flying over uh, Sevastopol, right? And to me, there's also the other war, as I mentioned, in the Eastern Oblast that Russia invaded, Donetsk and Luhansk. It's called the Donbass War. And the new Ukrainian president has sworn to end the war to find some solution. If you look at Ukrainian all-national censuses, they don't like to say this, but if you look at them, when they look into uh, the languages that are used in the households, a majority of, the, of them in Crimea, at least, are Russian. This doesn't mean that the annexation is legitimate. No, that, that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that there is a Russian ethnic presence within the territory. So if I was the Ukrainian president at this point, I would try to cut a deal with Russia because as long as this question exists in the air of, is Crimea Ukrainian? Is it Russian? Russia will always be towards the world a rogue state, right? It's the G7 now, not the G8, right? We kicked Russia out of the G8. It's a very important economic summit of the top economies in the world. And the fact that they're being ostracized more so poses a pretty big challenge to them economically. Uh, we already have robust sanctions in the country. So if I was Ukraine, I would try to strike up a deal. Maybe uh, Russia should abandon their imperialism in the Donbass in exchange for Ukrainian recognition of Crimea or something akin to that. But that might be out of the cards as well, because Crimea is what we call a warm water port, right? So Russia's main ports in, in St. Petersburg has a problem. It crosses through the Kiel Canal, which is owned by Germany, a NATO member. Russia's other port is Vladivostok, which is in the far east, right? This is closer to Alaska than it is London. 
you know, that's how, how big Russia is as a country. That port is frozen over for 70% or so of the year, which means that you can't really have much economic activity. So Sevastopol for Russia is a warm water port. It all, the only problem with it is that it crosses to the Bosporus Straits of Turkey. So that might be it's another consideration that Ukraine has to levy. Is the Donbass worth losing Crimea? Is there a way that they could take both back? I don't think the latter is even possible at this point. It's definitely interesting points you bring up. And I remember watching on TV for the first time when Russia had went to Crimea and supposedly had annexed it. In addition to that, there was also, I remember seeing Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 that was flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. It had mysteriously crashed over Ukraine and the U.S. at first was wanting to believe that Russia had something to do with it, but then come to find out after investigation, that was when it turned out to be an accident. So that's definitely when United States and Russia tensions had arisen, and with Crimea coming in as well, that was how Russia got kicked out of the G8 and it became the G7. And another point of interest, if you will, where Russia and the United States have had their involvement is indeed Syria in the Middle East. And as the United States has been heavily involved in the Middle East and reshaping the geopolitical landscape for almost two decades now. And to say the least that they have had a significant impact on Syria would be an understatement. So how would you describe the motivating factor of the United States involvement in Syria? And is there anything that you would do to kind of change that if there is anything you wanted to change about that? I'll answer that in a quick second, but to speak to your point on the tragedy of flight MH17, there has not been yet a conclusive or legitimate investigation into that matter, as Ukrainian authorities, I believe, have not been granted by the separatist administration, if you want to consider it an administration, full and unfettered access to what happened there. Uh, I think it was earlier this week that Ukraine's SSB arrested a, a GRU asset, GRU's Russia's military intelligence unit, from the separatist regions that allegedly had something to do with MH17. We're still waiting to see what happens there, but you don't have a concrete answer that everyone can find closure in yet. And that's one of the med many, many tragedies of that Donbass war uh, and the challenges that something like that poses. But can you re rephrase it? As soon as you said, I had to bring that up because that's one of those things, man, that I'm waiting uh, that when I'm 30 years old, we're gonna get an answer to, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no worries, man. So essentially, like I said, when, with Ukraine tensions rising with Crimea, that was when the G8 had agreed to kick out Russia and essentially become the G7. And another point of interest that Russia and the United States both have heavily been involved with is Syria. And in that factor, there have been a lot of solutions brought up, and especially in 2016, I remember watching presidential debates. But how would you describe the United States' key factor into their involvement with Syria? And would there be anything you wanted to change if there was anything you disagreed with whatsoever? So Syria is, that's not my wheelhouse particularly, but um, Syria, listen, man, Syria is one of these interesting things. Like I said at the very top of the, of the podcast, right, that there's a lot of holes within the U.S.-led world order, right? And those holes serve to denigrate it. Libya. Ukraine, up until 2014, was a big hole, very big hole. Like, our, our influence in Ukraine was minimal. And the same can be said of Syria, right? Syria has never been, or has not been our friend for quite some time. And the main issue with Syria is that we are worried that the Assad regime, President Bashar al-Assad Syria, will become a forward operating base for Iranian and Russian influence in the Eastern Mediterranean. 
right? There's, of course, a very strategic maritime region that is. It's right next to the Suez Canal. It's next to our NATO ally, Turkey. It's in the Middle East. It's near uh, all the oil in the Persian Gulf and all that. So we really need to make sure that Iran and Russia are not proliferating any more instability in the region, more than they already are, frankly. The second thing is that there was a genuine human rights issue at hand. Because during the Arab Spring, the protests I mentioned earlier, whereas Hosni Mubarak, Egypt's president, whereas he was overthrown and there was a democratic elections that followed, in Tunisia, the government fell, Libya went into civil war. The reason that Syria went into civil war is because Bashar al-Assad decided that he might as well brutalize protesters. And that's never good. We don't, we don't want to see that. Insofar as what our objectives are there, it was definitely initially regime change. It was Bashar al-Assad must go. The people must decide Syria's fate, all that. But now with the Trump administration, we've seen a dramatic shift. And that shift has a lot to do with President Erdogan of Turkey's strategic realignment, in my view. As I was doing a paper for a class of mine on Syria, the news had come during last fall that we were going to be pulling out, quote unquote, from uh, the Deir al-Zor region, uh, which is home to where the, that's where the Kurds are fighting. They were pivotal in our fight against ISIS in that conflict. And we were just going to leave them high and dry effectively. And the reason that we were going to do this was because President Erdogan of Turkey does not like Kurds, uh, because Turkey, since its inception after World War I, has had issues with Kurdish separatism. So if there was a quote-unquote Kurdistan in northeastern Syria, that brings into question the legitimacy of Kurdish-majority territories in Turkey, in Iraq, in some of, of Iran. So we left because we don't want to have a conflict with our allies. But we didn't really leave. We just shifted our, our troops over to Iraq, and then they went back and secured the oil and energy resources in the Deir al-Zor region, which has effectively bifurcated the strategic resources in Syria, as the Deir al-Zor region, if I have my facts correctly, constitutes about, uh, I think, 50% or so, almost, almost half of the uh, energy resources within Syria. So what we're seeing now is we are protecting a chunk of the energy, but our Kurdish allies are being assaulted by Turkey. So that, I, I strongly disagree with that. I could go into that if you guys want. Yeah, it was definitely interesting to hear what you had to say about uh, the key factors in our with our involvement in Syria. And as you know, with the Syrian civil war that had been going on since 2011, it in fact was at its peak point in 2015-16. And that was one of the major topics on foreign policy in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And one of the biggest shocking slash eye-opening moments for me was when Hillary Clinton said that her solution was to implement a no-fly zone across all of Syria, which a lot of military advisors and even Trump himself criticized because people were saying that it was going to escalate the conflict in Syria and get us more closely into another conflict with Russia. So it would have been very detrimental, in fact, if that had happened, said military advisors and Trump. And then Trump's solution with Syria was to focus more on the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, which shortened ISIS rather than trying to change the mind of Assad. But like you said, it's kind of been some sort of shift since he's been in office. And so I just wanted to kind of ask you, how do you feel about a no-fly zone? Do you agree with Hillary Clinton on that, sort of? And if, if that had happened, or 
did you like Trump's approach in trying to take out the terrorist group first? Because as you know, the Syrian civil war was a three-way battle because ISIS was both against the rebels and the government of Syria. So the Syrian civil war, you could argue, was a, some sort of uh, triangular three-way battle. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I can't believe I neglected to mention Daesh or, or ISIS. Um, well, I'll call them Daesh because if you say Daesh, it like delegitimizes them. Uh, our strategic objectives were initially overthrow Assad, then it became let's stop ISIS, and now we're in this kind of limbo. But regarding the no-fly zone, I think Hillary Clinton or Secretary Clinton, I think she pitched it in the wrong way. Uh, I don't know the exact quote that she used, but I'm going to assume that she meant it as in the whole of Syria, as in the entire polity of Syria pre-2011, all of that. Um, I don't think that would have been realistic. But I think a no-fly zone akin to Libya's Operation Odyssey Dawn that we did, and it worked, the, our, our, the rebels that we sponsored in, in Libya succeeded in overthrowing the Gaddafi government. I, I, would, I would have supported a no-fly zone along the Kurdish-controlled region that we have since abandoned. And that's mainly to preserve the fighting integrity of those forces so they're not harried and harassed by uh, Russian warplanes or the Syrian Arab Army's fighters and all that. But to your question of would this have sparked a conflict with Russia, would this have been a dramatic escalation? It would have been an escalation to be sure. But herein lies the issue with the security dilemma, because I cannot be any more right than you can be, in that we don't really know, right? This is a question of perception. Is Syria a big enough prize for Russia to push us to the brink of all-out war, which, as you know, would become nuclear war conceptually, right? Is Syria such a prize so as to invoke the mutually assured destruction conclusion to me, I'd say no. I'd say no. I'd say that's deeply irrational uh, for Russia to be willing to go to the brink of war over Syria. But we'll never know. We'll never know. What I would have done is I would have created a no-fly zone along the Kurdish-held areas, and I would have bifurcated the strategic resources of Syria, and I would have made that a frozen conflict. I would have done to Putin exactly what Russia has done to Georgia, what they're trying to do with Ukraine, what they've done to Moldova uh, in creating these frozen conflicts that never end and that everyone's on the brink of it because eventually someone can't hold their breath anymore and they're going to have to give up. But that's just my conception of the United States' power relative to the Russian Federation. Yeah, it's definitely interesting that you bring that up. And it most certainly, I believe it would have raised some sort of conflict, especially implementing it on Syria. But also, we have to ask ourselves, and like you said, it kind of put us in a limbo when ISIS began to absorb more power. So it eventually became, like I said, a three-way battle in the Syrian civil war. So it definitely was very interesting to hear what you had to say about that, because you definitely provided a very different solution compared to what Clinton and what Trump had proposed in 2016. And as you know, the Syrian civil war is not as mainstream. It's not as ongoing as if you will, as it is now, it's still go, it's still happening, but it's not at the peak that it was four or five years ago. Um, so I think Brian had something to say. Yeah. Uh, just to expand on what we've been talking about Syria, just, just one concern I, I had that I wanted to hear your opinion on is that in terms of the U S list of state sponsored terrorism, Syria has been on that list ever since the day we actually made that list. And it's because of their, their constant pursuit of weapons of mass destruction, as you were saying, their missile programs and all of that. They're sort of hunting for weapons. And 
all of this that has been happening in their capital in Damascus. So they have really undermined the U.S. attempts to stabilize the region, not just Syria, but Iraq as well. And we've sent billions of dollars to the region. And yes, there has been an armed conflict in Syria. 400,000 people have died in the region and millions of people have been displaced. And the U.S. has sent billions and billions of dollars to this region. However, what is it all for? Uh, I think that a main criticism that people have against having more influence over Syria has been the idea that we're, we're just wasting money on the region and that we have no plan working towards it. I know you mentioned a little bit of, of what your plan would be. However, just, just expand on the idea that they pretty much undermine the, the U.S. wanting to stabilize the region. How does the U.S. gain more influence in that region? Yeah, so regarding Syria as an actor, uh, we know that they have chemical weapons. Uh, we know that they have barrel bombs. We know that Assad has gas his own people. These are all things that we know. So it, these things, barrel bombing your own civilians, possessing, but just the possession of chemical weapons uh, is deeply against international law. It deeply, deeply creates um, security questions where states like Israel have to be hyper-militarized. A state like Syria with barrel bombs, chemical weapons, all these things uh, have claims on Israeli land, i.e. the Golan Heights. Syria has its own issues, right? That we've had our, uh, our finger on the pulse of for some time. But regarding U.S. investment in the region and questions as to their efficiency, I think United States foreign policy, or specifically security policy abroad, where we lose isn't on the battlefield. We won the Iraq war. There are some arguments that you could make that we came close to winning Vietnam if we made different strategic decisions. We're not winning in Afghanistan. I can't make that argument. Uh, we won in Libya conceptually against Gaddafi. We won the Gulf War. We, we killed Osama bin Laden. Like, we've achieved our strategic objectives. But our problem is cleaning up the messes that we make. Because war, no matter how uh, justified they are or not justified, that's totally up to your conception of, of justifications and just war theory. War is very, very messy, right? You know, uh, we have an issue with state building. We have an issue with creating institutions that are able to respect the cultural differences within uh, these states that we go into. And so I hear you that throwing money may not be the, the solution, but it certainly helps for reconstruction, right? Uh, and we already have a precedent of foreign aid preventing war, right? The Camp David Accords uh, between Israel and Egypt. Israel and Egypt are the top recipients of U.S. financial aid. You want to guess why? It's so they don't go to war with one another. Right. Uh, we effectively paid Israel to give back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. Right. That's that's kind of what, what came out of those negotiations. What I would like to see is I would like to see smarter funding and smarter uses of that money. But it, the idea of investment is not illegitimate. It's not it's not flawed. It's just not targeted. And our policymakers, our generals, they did not initially have an understanding of the diversity in these regions, of the history in these regions, the ethnicities the theology that's going on there. Just to answer your question, it took very long, but it's a very wordy conversation. Yeah, that was a good question by Brian. Very good answer by Nick. It was definitely very interesting to hear that. And with the interest in the strategy that we had in going into Syria, and we had, like as you said, um, you described past wars that we had been in, the Gulf War, Vietnam War, all sorts of stuff. And you talk about, since, as you said, wars were messy, we never really clean it up, right? But World War II, 
you could even argue Japan and Western Europe, we essentially helped rebuild. And one could even argue that the U.S. is the reason why Japan is thriving economically and speaking. And same for Germany. With Germany, both after World War One and World War Two, their economy was in complete ruins. And it only just put them down even worse when the Great Depression happened between World War One and World War Two. So the fact that we even cleaned up after, after arguably the two biggest wars that the world had ever seen, where we've had fought our enemies. And now one could argue that the U.S. is the reason why both Germany and Japan are thriving economically. And now that I bring up those two other countries, we're going to kind of go into a more broad question, if you will. And that sort of is, what are the future plans of U.S. national security? There's a big, big difference in what the world was then and what it is now. And that main difference is something called communism, right? At the end of World War II, the Marshall Plan, in my view, it wasn't an altruistic thing. It wasn't. It just simply wasn't. We were dragged into both world wars, arguably, because um, in, in World War II, before Japan attacked us, we were having the Lend-Lease Act. Like, we were going to get into World War II, in my opinion, regardless of Pearl Harbor, at least in Europe. But the Marshall Plan happened because we need to rebuild these countries in such a way that the Soviet Union could not then go and sell the masses, these veterans, who there's not very many opportunities, right? The, the hub of, of violent extremism is a lack of opportunities. That's a universal constant, right? We didn't want to have the, a situation where in Europe, uh, Pole peoples, the Dutch, the Danish, the French, the Germans, the Yugoslavs, the Italians, we didn't want all these people to be resentful and then to turn to a despotic system such as Marxism-Leninism or Stalinism or something like that. So we, what we needed to do was we needed to make sure that we could jumpstart their economies and create opportunities to make sure that doesn't happen, right? And the same can be said of Japan because there was Mao's Red China was uh, crushing Chiang Kai-shek or was about to. We needed to make sure that Japan, a militaristic culture, uh, did not have any more reason to go back to the katana and the blade and all that. So we had reasons to make sure that these countries prospered. But I think at the, after Iraq, we, did, we weren't in that same headspace, if that makes sense. I think now, if we did Iraq again, or if something similar like that occurred, God willing, knocking on my floor right now, it's made of wood, that we would rebuild those countries in a way that provides more opportunities. Because what we see, the difference between a youth with next to no economic power, next to no economic opportunity, and a Daesh fighter, their difference is not very big. And the funnel is very, very uh, massive for them to go through. But what is the future of U.S. national security strategy? Well, we're in an election year, so we don't really know. And we're kind of in this weird coronavirus limbo uh, where a lot of our military activities are suspended. And uh, someone like me is very worried that Russia and China, these are states that don't particularly care about their citizens' well-being, uh, that Russia and China are going to be trying to abuse this little time. In Libya, I could say that Russia is already trying to get away with murder, effectively. And in Hong Kong, China has already gone away with murder with the national security law. Um, but what is the future? I think the future, if Trump is, a, is reelected, is continued deterrence, maybe more, more reinvestment in the country, and less participation in international institutions. We just pulled out the World Health Organization in the midst of the worst global pandemic in modern history. However, if Joe Biden is elected, I think we're going to see 
a return to Obama era liberalism, participation in international institutions. We're going to see a rapprochement with our European allies. And, you know, it's up to the voters to decide whether they like that type of world, right? You have on one hand, Trump is saying that the Europeans must pay 2% for NATO. And then you had Obama who was kind of loosey-goosey on that. Is Biden going to be the same thing? I'm inclined to say he's going to be similar. Maybe not the same, but maybe similar. It all depends on what happens in November. Yeah, and as you were saying about the the Trump administration versus the Biden administration, that's definitely something we have to consider because it's not a guarantee that Trump's going to be in office. So the future of foreign policy and security in our nation isn't as clear as we would want it to be. However, as you were saying, I just want to talk about something that you were mentioning about Trump, right? And I think that what he has focused on is America first. And that's exactly what you were saying. He was fo- he's focusing on deterrence. And he believes that the way that we can be able to have a national influence is just to continue to support nations that, that have American values and also to preserve peace through strength, pretty much be able to strengthen our military. But we left the World Health Organization and we left so many trade agreements with other countries the Trump administration has focused on bringing U.S. companies back to the United States, right? So I want to see your opinion and why you think that may not be the best for our country. So uh, when I was in high school and when I was a freshman in university, I, I did support uh, this idea of America first and why isn't Europe paying their 2%. But at the same time, you know, you have to understand that, let's say I'm the foreign minister of France, And I see that the next U.S. president is saying America first. If there is a question of French wine, do I trust the U.S. president to respect my economic interests? No, I I don't. Well, we're allies, so that brings in legitimate questions. So a world where America is first, to the outside world, they will always interpret that as America first, us last. It just is what it is. And I think that the what we should be doing is we should be going back towards our Cold War strategies in the creation of harmonies of interest, right? And what do I mean by this? We need to have pragmatic cooperation with states such as Turkey, right? That they sit at the crossroads of the, of the world with even states like Russia, frankly, right? And there have been hints of that, right? When ISIS was on the rise, the United States of America and Russia did work towards fighting them. That is what we call a harmony of interest. We could agree on that. But we cannot agree with Russia on Crimea, right? And we should make that known to them. We should be transparent about that. We shouldn't be isolating ourselves or social distancing ourselves from the world community. And what we're seeing from the United States under the Trump administration, and I don't like to, I don't like to say any administration is irrational or illogical because I believe that states generally are rational and logical. But what we're seeing from the Trump administration is various actions that are alienating the Muslim travel ban, right? That does terrible, terrible for our cultural diplomacy in the Middle East. And it's very bad optics. The big one in the Middle East, oh my God, I almost forgot this one, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, listen, you could say what you want about a state saying X city is our capital. That makes sense. But the problem is, is that there's nuances to that, right? And just doing it because... America wants to, uh, you know, all, all these things is not smart. We have to think harder. You can't just follow your gut on international politics. And it's very clear that the president of the United States of America on a lot of things follows his guts. 
Whether that's right or wrong, that's up to you to decide. I'm not saying anything which way or another. All I'm saying is that you have to have a deep analytical mind for foreign affairs. It's a very big world. It's a very complicated world. There's nuances to everything. And there's absolutely no way that you will understand everything in this world. I do not pretend to say that I am a master of everything Russia or a master of everything Syria. I am educated on them. I, I can speak on them. I can offer my insights on them. But I'm not a, a master. I, I do not know everything. I can be proven wrong. We can be proven wrong. And we have to be listening to people who we know know more than us, right? I would trust my professor's opinion who is tenured, has been writing on these things for 20 or so years than I would my dad's opinion who just watches Fareed Zakaria, right? So I think that a world of America first is a reaction. It is a gut reaction from a man, Donald Trump, who for years has been getting angry about our trade deficits with other nations and all that. Look at Trump's interviews going back into the 80s. He's been saying the same thing. He's very consistent. You have to give him credit for that, at least. This is a reaction. It's a gut reaction. It's like, I feel like we are getting ripped off by the world. And are you? Maybe, maybe not. But if you are, the, the solution is not to just stick your head in the sand. It's to come to the negotiation table and see why are you ripping me off, quote unquote, or why do we have a disagreement? Is there any conceivable way that we can meet in the middle? Why can you not pay 2% as a part of your NATO dues? Is it because X, Y, or Z? How can I help you pay 2%? What can I do to, to make you want to pay 2%? Well, if you don't pay 2%, I'm sorry, but we, we must cut some of our, 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 our forces from your country. Okay, you'll pay 2% now? Thank, like, these are the types of dialogues that we have to have. And I am disturbed by the idea that we are not having these dialogues under the present administration. It's definitely interesting points that you bring up and a lot of what we have to do in terms of our national security. And you were talking about Trump and how he felt like he was kind of being ripped off, if you will. So it's like, and you say he's been consistent that for years. And I've definitely seen the interviews from the 80s that he's said similar to that. So kind of moving on, since we have spent a very long time on this, sort of our last question, and, and, and it's nothing to discredit you at all, because um, you are a very informative man, and you're very smart, and you are knowledgeable in this. So the last question that I will leave you is, are these issues accessible to the American people? Are these issues of foreign affairs, of states, and all these, are these accessible to the American people? I'm going to say that specifically, American people, because Europeans are different. I feel like they're more educated uh, on their surroundings. But to the American people, my answer is no. Our K through 12 curriculum places absolutely no emphasis on what is going on around the world. And there's a million reasons for this. But what this is to say is that it presents a unique problem, because like I said at the start of the show, if I think about it, I never would have imagined that I'd care so much about Libya. I probably wouldn't even have figured out where Libya is on a map, frankly. So international relations as a discipline, to truly be informed on it and to have your conception of the world move beyond what Fox News tells you or what uh, CNN tells you, for you to truly grasp it, I think you have to have an interest in, in history. And I think you have to look at the collegiate programs you're about to apply to. Because I think it only becomes accessible once you take collegiate level courses on it. And once you are taught by people who have a firm grasp on it already, 
because to just leave everyone to their own devices and to allow very partisan sources such as American mainstream media and all that uh, to mold your worldview, I think is a tremendous disservice to people should they want to be global citizens. It's definitely good points that you bring up. And as you said, it's not accessible to the American people through the K-12 curriculum. And it's definitely very interesting to say the least. And if you were to ask me on this, if we could make it accessible, I'd say yes, because the, we, need, we need to learn the world around us. And it doesn't matter how distant we are geographically compared to other countries and other cultures. I, I, th- I believe that middle school and high school students need to at least know a little bit about some country or some sort of relationship that we have with another country in order to ensure that they have some sort of grasp of what's really going on around the world. And people need to be aware of these issues. You know, if you were to go around and ask people um, who were looking to vote in the next election, you know, what their foreign policy would be, they really wouldn't be able to tell you because most voters are focusing more on domestic issues. So when you think about all of the factors that go into forming a foreign policy, a lot of people wouldn't be able to answer that. And you only really get to know that if you're studying this type of stuff in college or some sort of collegiate level like we are. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be very brief, but I think both of you guys make some significant points, whether the K through 12 system doesn't allow for international policy to be taught in the schools or however you may call it. Right. And then Gannon suggested some, maybe that you require some classes that people take. Right. However, at the end of the day, I think that just to speak to the audience for a second, that you guys need to do your own independent research. I think that at the end of the day, the school can only teach you too much. And even in in the college level, there are professors who indeed have an expertise in certain topics. However, to develop your own opinion on something, you have to do your own independent research on it. And you can't rely so much on the mainstream media. With that being said, just any final comments we have before we close the episode? Uh, I just wanted to thank you guys for having me on the show. It's a great opportunity. I didn't say this at the beginning, but it's been a lifelong dream of mine to be on some form of media, radio, something like that. So thank you so much. It means a lot. Uh, And thank you to the listener if you got this far. Very, very dense. A lot of complicated issues we got into today. And if you have any inputs, I guess, like, thank, just thank you. Thank you. I'm just so, so happy. Yeah. And we do see you as an inspiration. And we do think that as our first guest star, we chose you for a reason. And it's because you know what you're talking about in terms of national security. And we appreciate you being on the show and bringing a lot of different perspectives that we don't normally have on the show. And Gannon, do you have anything else to say before? No, other than the fact that I was honestly not expecting this episode to go on for so long, but I don't blame you, dude. You are so knowledgeable in this area of politics. So it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. It kind of offsets because you were able to bring so much to the table and it was just, it was just mind blowing. And for the, for the listener, I'd imagine that this may be a little complicated for you to take everything in, but if you want to go to some sort of specifics about that, that's where you kind of just have to listen and kind of take notes on that, if you will, if you wanted to in the first place. But yeah, this was definitely a good conversation to have on something that a lot of people really don't know about, especially with international conflicts. Yeah. And just to wrap up, this concludes our episode. And after watching this episode, make sure to follow us on Instagram at The Missing Bridge and continue on to follow us for any updates on episodes and anything that we're going to be doing in the future. However, we thank Nick, we thank Gannon for being on the show and Stay tuned. We're going to have more episodes with guest stars. This is only the beginning. We thank you for tuning in and we hope you have an amazing day.